Good morning, everyone. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Revelation. So last week, we took a look at uh, chapter four, this uh, um, vision John has. Ooh. After he ha um, has presented the vision of the seven letters. So now he's, he took us last week in chapter four to the start uh, of this next vision where um, John is taken up and he gets to look into heaven and he sees this worship going on. And we took a look last week at um, some of these uh, symbolic creatures and particularly uh, how the church was symbolized um, using a lot of the same words that uh, John had employed in the letters to the seven churches to describe the promise uh, for the church that overcomes. And then uh, as he gets this glimpse in heaven, he gets to see uh, some of that promise uh, fulfilled, seeing the 24 elders uh, clothed in white, worshiping the Lord. Um, today we turn to chapter 5, which continues on in the scene of worship. But as we'll see, uh, the emphasis or focus of that um, worship shifts a little. And that's one of the things I want us to look at today. But before we Read our text. Let me open us in a word of prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for this word that you've given to us, this world that word that reveals who you are and what you're like. We praise you, Lord God, that you are not a God um, uh, hidden from us, but you are a God of revelation and that you revealed yourself uh, through the words of the scriptures, but most of all, you revealed yourself through the living word, Jesus Christ. As we open the book of Revelation this morning, we ask that you would, by your spirit, equip us to study it. Give us eyes to see that we might catch a glimpse of the vision that John has of uh, heavenly glory and our heavenly future. We ask that you would give us ears to hear that we would not just be recipients of the word, but we might have understanding and know how to apply it into our daily life and to the life of our congregation church. Uh, use this word to inform our wills, that we would not just um, be filled with, with knowledge of, of things present and future, but that you would help us engage in the work of your kingdom extending that kingdom in the present and the future, that we would be your willing subjects. Lord God, we ask that you would help us to see how we are to be bearers of your glory. As we see uh, the heavenly king depicted here, we are also reminded in our text today that you call us to be a kingdom of priests. Uh, help us to understand what it means to serve and rule alongside Christ. We ask these things, and we ask that you would teach us this day by your Holy Spirit, through the power of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven 
or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Okay, so our vision um, picks up uh, where it left off in its description last time. Last time it gave us this, this very vivid, uh, colorful picture of the one who sits on the throne, this image of God. And now we have uh, an additional detail that John gives us. This one who's seated on the throne has a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So what is this, um, and some of your translations might have book, um, what is this scroll, what is this book that's in God's right hand? How do we understand what that is? What are some of our options? Okay, so that's one option, uh, and we'd seen earlier in Revelation reference to, I will make sure your names are inscribed in the Book of Life. So is what uh, is being held in God's hand here, the Book of Life. Okay, there's an option. And the Lamb, because we'll see uh, a relationship between this book and the Lamb. So, okay, good. Other options. What do we, what do we think this book is? Okay, um, and he, you know, he talks about in chapter 4 that you know, the purpose of this visit to heaven is to show the things that must take place after this. So is this book, is it going to be an, a revealing, an unfolding of uh, the future events of judgment? And we'll see as we see those seals broken in subsequent chapters, um, 
uh, we see bad things happening. <laughs> Uh, so um, maybe more so than prophecy, um, sort of, it, it has a little more maybe decretal element because as you see the seal broken, you know the things take you know, are coming to pass. Um, so the book is sort of um, uh, in in this view is unfolding um, these events, and you get references um, you know on this in, in places like. Uh, Daniel 12.4 talks about the book is sealed up until the final days, and then the seals are broken. So uh, that would, you know, go along with this sort of, is it future events? Victor, you had your hand up. Okay. Uh, the future events, all right. Anything else we might? Now we understand? Yeah, maybe instead of just, um, um, there's a way you can look at it as specific decrees for telling, you know, this, this future tribulation. But it could also be a, just sort of more general, um, that uh, this is the book we might call of, of redemptive history. Um, it's the overall book of God's plan of judgment and redemption. So um, rather than being just sort of some specific future tribulation, uh, a more general sort of, um, this is a picture of in the entirety of redemptive history. And we'll see the role of, of uh, especially Christ's work um, is necessary for this book to take place. Any others? Yeah, so these secret things, sometimes in Scripture we talk about the, you know, the secret things of God. So, you know, it, these are the secret things, um, and now they're going to come to pass. And, and we think of, um, you know, you know this, this, this scroll or this book, however we want to understand it, is sealed, which sort of goes along with that. These are things that are um, kept safe, kept you know, they're hidden until those seals are broken and you unfold it and read it. So sealing has this idea of um, concealing. Good. Anything else you can think of? Book? Um, I'll, I'll throw some other ones I ran. Some have suggested that this is uh, um, the way the Old Testament was uh, a sealed book in a sense until Christ came and opened the book. Uh, you know, you think of, and people interpret it this way, point to things like the uh, Ethiopian eunuch who Philip encounters, and, you know, he's reading, and he's like, who can understand this unless somebody explains it? And, you know, at that moment, you know, Philip is able to open the book because of, of Christ, so that's a suggestion. Um, another one, and this is uh, one... I wouldn't have thought of, but um, it, it makes us think um, in terms of the cultural context of the day. Um, some have suggested that this is a testament or will. Like, where do they get that from? Wills in the Roman Empire were sealed with seven seals. And they were documents uh, so you'd, you'd roll it up, you'd seal it, and on the outside, it would be written on both sides. On one side, it would have sort of, you know, the summary of what's in it, last will and testament of, you know, so-and-so. And then when you open it, 
then the full contents are revealed, and then they're enacted. Once you break those seals, um, then you know the whatever is written in the document now legally comes to take place. Um, so the idea of um, uh, you know you have what's been decreed, and you know a will. If you think of a will and that kind of, and then when once you you uh, break those seals, then what has been decreed now becomes executed. Uh, you know, whatever's written in there. Um, so I, I throw out all the options because I want us to sort of think about you know, the fullness of the images that John's employing here and how we think about them. Um, and as we see um, the contents of, of the scroll being unfolded in future chapters, um, to think about what the purpose is. And, um, and we especially see this in, uh, in terms of, you know, who can open this book. Um, that it has to do especially uh, with Christ's uh, death on the cross um, is key to the opening of the scroll. So in a sense, Revelation 5 um, contains a lot of all those different kinds of ways we understand it. In one sense, it is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about the consummation of history initiated by Christ's death on the cross. It's the way all the Old Testament, when it's open to us through the lens of Christ, points to the moment of the cross. But it's also future. That moment of the cross points to this glorious consummation of history. Um, so it is, I think, in this way, this entire summation of redemptive history. It, in a sense, it does encapsulate that message of the Old Testament pointing to the cross, pointing to the coming Christ, who un, you know, unlocks uh, what takes place in the end days, the consummation of history. It's the way all of history was consummated on the cross, and now it's unfolding uh, even as we speak. Um, so I think there's an all-comprehensive uh, aspect uh, to this. Um, uh, and before we sort of move on, the emphasis here um, with scrolls, it, you know, in a, a first-century Christian context, or even a first-century Jewish context, scrolls mean scripture. Um, so to think of that in the, the fact that it's an unlocking of revelation, that God is a God who reveals. So it's not um, the purpose of unlocking the scroll isn't to sort of give us more sort of hidden mysteries to figure out. The purpose is to reveal something about the nature of God and his redemptive plan. We good with that? <laughs> yeah, Mark. Um, well, I mean, there's the way the, the book of Revelation, you know, as the final, you know, this is the final book of, of our scriptures. Um, this is the final uh, revealing, you know, as we saw in the first week, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is the final picture we're given of Christ. And giving us that final picture, it's the way John is presenting us, not only with the future, but a summation of the whole thing. Um, and uh, especially, and this is something we'll get at in a little bit, 
um, I, I was just really struck in chapter five of how Christocentric it, it is. Um, chapter four, we saw how God-centric it was. All the focus was on the throne, this, this God who was and who is and who is to come, this God who created all things. The focus on chapter five is on Christ, the one who was worthy to open the book, the one who was slain to redeem uh, this people from every nation and tongue. Um, so to think of it, this is a revealing of Christ and the way that John here is, is giving us a picture of how Christ is at the center of our history. Okay. So we have this book that, that John is really um, uh, uh, tearful over um, uh, because it's sealed. And if you sort of, he's been brought up in the heaven to be shown what's come. Oh, uh, you know, here's this book and nobody can open it. What? I came here and nobody can open the book. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, the way he grieves that no one's found worthy. Who can open the sealed book? And what makes that person worthy? I mean, we've got lots of cool creatures we've seen um, in this heavenly, and why can't you know, one of them open the book? What's, what's necessary to unseal this scroll? Okay, so we, the necessity, uh, as we see, um, you know, the reasons why, uh, the necessity of having shed blood to open the book, um, that uh, you were slain by your blood, you ransomed your people. So uh, the shedding of blood seems necessary for the opening of this book. Mark, and then... Okay, so we have to have the shedding of blood. We have to have a certain kind of worthiness. And to sort of think of where we had seen worthy earlier, immediately prior to this, worthy are you, our Lord and God. So it's sort of the focus on who's worthy thus far has been on God. So now we need someone who is worthy, who can open the scroll. And none of these elders, none of these creatures above or below the earth are worthy. And, yeah, that there, there's a certain conquest that has to take place. Um, and notice there uh, the kingly language, the line of the tribe of Judah, you know, that's the symbol of the king, um, the root of David, you know, a Davidic son. So um, it's testifying to the fact that whoever opens this scroll has to be human. Um, so we need someone who's worthy, someone who, um, who conquers. And so we need a king. We need a human king. Um, anything else we want to say about it? Yeah, it has to be of the line of David. Um, what else makes this person, uh, you know, qualifies him to open this book? Here. Yeah, that, and, and it's, you know, as this chapter unfolds, 
That's exactly where we're, we're ending to. The last word of praise in this book, to him who sits on the throne, God, and to the Lamb, this God-man, um, be blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. Uh, I mean, what really struck me, this is one of the most um, uh, vivid cases in the New Testament of asserting the deity of Christ. I mean, how much, you know, there, you get all through the Gospels, you get those pictures of Christ being God, but, you know, he's always sort of, you know, using language to kind of veil who he is a little bit. Um, I mean, what clearer picture can you have presented to you that Jesus is God than this, seeing a heavenly scene where God on the throne and the slain lamb are both being worshipped. Victor. Yeah, no man could, could possibly repay this infinite debt to God. Um, but you, you had to have a, a, a perfect man. But it had to be man, because only man can pay the debt. Because uh, only man can die. Um, yeah, and I think it's, it, you know, it's the way that, and John has this great way of taking contemporary symbols, you know, in this case, a testament, and, and, and um, intertwining them with Old Testament symbols. Because we have that same kind of picture of the Old Testament, the way it's pointing to there, there needs to be a, a lamp whose blood has to be shed and sprinkled on the people uh, to atone for their sins. So they can stand in the presence of God. Um, you know, that blood has to be shed. Um, that, that person has to die in order for uh, the testament to, to take effect. Yeah, um, and, and that, let's, let's turn to that. So, so we, we've had um, this sort of, all right, who's worthy? So now we're starting to give pictures of who it is that was worthy. So what are some of the images that were given of, of, of Jesus here, of this lamb? What, what are words, what phrases? And, and Mike just pointed us to this one. It's a lamb who's slain yet standing. What other descriptors um, are we given? Why are you laughing? <laughs> We don't usually paint a, a, a slain lamb yet standing. Uh, okay, so he's got seven eyes and seven horns, so this is normal lamb. <laughs> um, horns, you know, uh, again, to sort of think seven being that symbolic number of, um, of fullness uh, or completeness. So horn being the sign of strength. So this lamb um, who is slain yet standing has total strength. Eye um, is often a symbol of wisdom, so you know, you know, so seven eyes, complete, full wisdom. What else? We got Tim's uh, seven spirits referred to here from last week. <laughs> um, and while, uh, so uh, hold on, let me read the verse. So, um, uh, a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So this is the fourth time we've had the seven spirits of God mentioned. This is the last time they're mentioned. Um, 
So I tried to work on this last week since I, Tim stumped me last, last time. And this is the only time in uh, John and Revelation and in these four times is the only place in the scriptures we have the phrase seven spirits of God. So, you know, as y'all know or should know by week six here, I use a lot of Old Testament to try to figure out what's going on in Revelation. Uh-oh. <laughs> what do I do with seven spirits of God? Um, so what are our options? Yeah, Mike. Okay, so, uh, and we've, we've seen those references to the seven spirits of God. We saw it, so the first time was in chapter one, um, uh, in the sort of uh, introductory, grace to you, peace from him, who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So there we have those seven spirits referred to. Um, it's then used again um, in the first verse of chapter three in the letter to the church in Sardis the word of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Um, and then chapter uh, four, we saw last time, these um, uh, before the throne were boring seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And then um, our here, here we have these seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So, um, so one uh, um, interpretation is that, as Mike says, these are those angels or the spirits attached to those seven churches that we've seen encountered uh, in this book. So there's option one. <laughs> Kathy. Um, yeah, so and, and sort of some have taken seven spirits of God to be this a way of John uh, alluding to uh, the perfect spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So seven spirits of God. I mean, again, how do you describe the Holy Spirit? Um, so he's having a vision here. You know, he's seeing the seven spirits, the, you know, uh, or the spirits before the throne. Is that so someone said the seven spirits are this picture, you know, with seven being that full, perfect spirit in the presence of God. You know, we've got God the Father, we've got Jesus depicted here. So let's round it out with the Trinity and so seven spirits. So that's that's a second option. Yeah. Okay, the invisible church, the full number of the elect. Um, uh, uh, so again, sort of uh, using this language to attach to some other kind of creatures or entities. Any other? Uh, there's one other um, that in my looking up um, and trying to answer Tim's question from last week. Um, and this is from uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 11, verse 2. And I really wanted this one to be it. But I'm not convinced that this one's it. So um, in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth... Uh, I'll start in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So Spirit 1, Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So, you know, Boy, 
seven. <laughs> Could that be it? Um, the reason I'm, a, you know, uh, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The next six things all are describing that one spirit of the Lord. So it sort of seems a little awkward for me to, uh, from a number perspective. But it, it sounded cool. <laughs> And it was from the Old Testament, so I liked that one. Um, but I'm not quite sure um, that's, that's it. Um, uh, so all that to say, in my long answer to Tim's short question, <laughs> those are our options, I think. Um, I am probably, personally, as I looked at it this week, I'm somewhere in between um, seeing it as a representation of the Holy Spirit or seeing them as representatives of, of the church and these, you know, again, the way the seven churches are, are a proxy for the church universal. So I'm, I, one in the morning, I'm for one, in the afternoon, I'm for the other, going back and forth. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe it can be both. Um, the Holy Spirit's, pre I mean, again, what makes these churches able to stand in God's presence, but the presence of the Spirit. And we saw that in those descriptions of those churches witness, that they have this lampstand planted in their midst that then shines forth light. And here in Revelation, we have that picture of those seven spirits in chapter 4, um, are seven, uh, seven burning torches of fire. So, I mean, it, there is that sort of same uh, image. Um, so... That was a long way to say, I don't know. But, um, but I think those are all sort of um, scripturally open uh, options for us. And the seven spirits sort of disappear after this, which again, sort of to go to the, um, to the seven churches, church universal, the references to the seven particular churches that we've seen so thus far through the book also disappear. Um, from now on, it's going to be the church universal. Um, so, uh, that was a long detour, but yeah. And not only all those things, you know, think how paradoxical this picture of Christ is. On the one hand, he's the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who's conquered. He's a slain lamb. And I don't like that it says uh, a lamb uh, as if it had been slain. There is no if it, as if it had been. It is a slain lamb, but it's standing, as Mike said. You know, here you've got a lamb that's been clearly slain, yet it is standing. Um, Christ conquers by his sacrifice. Um, I mean, it's the paradox of our salvation that the kingdom comes at the cross. You know, that's the inauguration of the kingdom. That looks like the moment of defeat. Yeah, that, yeah, it's, it's so, and again, it's the way John is, um, you know, bringing together the entirety of redemptive history here. You know, we have those same paradoxical pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. You know, you know, expecting one who will rule on the throne of David. Expecting a, a lamb who will be led, um, bef you know, before slaughters without sound. I mean, both those pictures there. 
And here it is. This is the one. And he's done this in order to, uh, to bring history to its endpoint. Uh, Mike, and then we'll work our way forward. Any art trying to, to, to depict, you know, this kind of scene before us, yeah, it's going to be. Um, and uh, I had a great, um, uh, one of the commentaries I'm, I'm using um, uh, by Beale, um, he had a great uh, line on this. He said, the present victorious effect of the land's overcoming resides not only in the fact that the lamb continues to stand, but also in the fact that it continues to exist as slaughtered. Um, you know, I, and I really, and, and that's the picture, Johns. You have a lamb who has been uh, wounded unto death, and yet here it still stands strong. Here it still stands ruling. It's by that uh, shedding of blood to death that Christ's rule is inaugurated. The kingdom ushers forth into human history. That's the moment God's kingdom breaks into the kingdoms of man. Yeah, that he could, I want to touch, the wound is still there. And, you know, sometimes we have this picture, again, uh, you know, Jerry brought up all the sort of, you know, pictures we have of, of, of Christ, you know, that circulate in popular culture that usually looks, you know, like a white hippie. Um, but here the, the picture is of, uh, of the lamb still, you know, having the visible wounds of, of the sacrifice that, that had to be made in order for the seals on this, this scroll to be broken. Mark. And I think Lewis had exactly in mind this kind of, uh, again, the paradoxical picture. It is through the lamb's death. And again, this lamb is previously described as the lion of Judah. It's like the lion of Judah. Let's see him. It's a lamb. It's a lamb that's been slain. It's a lamb that's been slain yet is standing and has the horns of strength, has the eyes of wisdom that uh, it is in God's presence and is worthy to be worshipped. Yeah, Jordan. Yeah, and uses power in the way we think power should be used. You know, a lion, that's what a lion does. A lion should conquer and devour. You know, that, and here when we've shown the picture of the lion, the lion of Judah, it's a lion that has conquered by sacrificing itself. And, and like we saw last week in terms of this, it's, you know, think of everybody who ever has a glimpse of God, you know, who gets to see, you know, just a, you know, you know, as Moses described, you know, I'll let you see my hind portions, um, you know, and falls flat on their face. It's, it's the way we talked about last week. You know, we can't, in our present sinful state, take it all in. Um, we can't handle that full, um, being fully in the presence of God. But what John's pointing us to, there will be a moment we will stand in that presence, and we will um, see him fully. Well, it's, it's revealing, 
Um, as much as we can take in now, but with the promise that we will see God face to face um, and be able to stand in God's presence. Yeah, and what, that's why I didn't want to throw out completely that sort of this is unfolding the Old Testament. Again, it's, I think it's the way we can sort of do, the, you know, and you all know me well enough by now, I like both and. <laughs> I like all of the above. <laughs> well, that sounds good. That sounds good. Let's just take them all. Um, but the way I really see in this the entirety of redemptive history being presented, Old Testament, future tribulation, it's, it's, all, um, it, it's all being encapsulated in this moment. And, and the one who unlocks all of that history is Christ. It's through Christ we understand the Old Testament becomes open to us. I, I love reading Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament because they give me insight into Jewish custom and tradition I might not necessarily pick up on my own, but I can only understand the Old Testament through Christ. Um, I can only understand the Old Testament through the New Testament. The New Testament makes the Old Testament an open book to us. Um, in the same way, you know, I can only understand what's, um, what's promised, what's going to come to pass through, through Christ, uh, through understanding that this is the culmination, the fulfillment of what Christ inaugurated on the cross. So it's the, you know, it encapsulates the past, it's the present, you know, engaging what the church needs to be doing now, and it's looking forward to the future. I saw another hand, but maybe it's just movement, motion. Um, so let's get to, so um, we, we were given a couple of songs, um, just as we had songs in chapter four, um, talking about, um, you know, uh, and I'll just read them. So in chapter four, we had um, these, these praises being lifted up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Um, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, by your will they existed and were created. So those are the two from chapter 4. Now listen to the ones from chapter th uh, 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the final, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So what's different between these, the, the new song that we see in chapter 5 and those ones we saw in chapter 4? Yeah, so it's Christ-centered, um, especially, uh, you know, this first one, or first two. Uh, worthy uh, are you to take the scroll, for you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people for God. And then um, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So it's, the focus is on Christ, and not just any picture of Christ, but on the picture of the lamb as slain, which, um, again, John, uh, as, I mean, I should have counted. I didn't. Um, 
how many different phrases John has used for Christ so far in this book? I mean, think of all the different sort of word pictures, descriptors. I mean, just in this book, you know, the line of Judah, the root of David. You know, he's thrown out um, terms referring to Christ throughout this book. His favorite, the lamb. Um, that's going to be his favorite image. Uh, he uses it over 25 times in the entirety of the book. Um, so this, this focus on this slain lamb um, is new, is different from what we saw in chapter 4. What else would you say is different about these songs? Yeah, the creation and the new creation. Um, this new creation uh, um, that's inaugurated by the shedding of his blood. Um, and uh, I used to have a, a, or I used to TA for a professor at Duke, and one of his enormous pet peeves, he was in the Methodist uh, church, and one of his enormous pet peeves about the Methodist church is they had in their liturgy this kind of um, Trinitarian formula, or, or so instead of saying Father, Son, Holy Ghost, they'll say uh, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer. And he's like, that is as radical as you can get. <laughs> because of what George's saying. It's not that um, the, the deity is broken into sort of different, all right, this one creates, and this one redeems, and this one sustains. The entirety of the Godhead is involved in all of these actions. And so just as John presents Christ as active in the role of creation, he's also active in the role of redemption and the role of sustaining and bringing all things to come. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, no, it, that's that's um, a pretty good, um, and, and it's uh, it, the the fuzzier language is um, is earlier. Um, I bef and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the Lamb standing. So you have this picture of God enthroned, and then you have a picture of the Lamb. Um, and the word there that um, the ESV is using between. Um, it's, it's more sort of like the midst, um, you know, in the midst of would be another kind of, of translation. And even that, you know, so it's, um, it's picturing two entities, just as we can picture the, the father and the son as, you know, two persons. Um, and yet the language is fuzzy enough to see them in the same place. So it's almost like in the midst of the throne is the slain lamb. Um, so that's where you can distinguish them to the one on the throne, God the Father, to the Lamb, be glory, honor. I mean, I think the statement there is to, to um, equate the slain Lamb with God um, as two persons of the, of the Trinity. You know, it's not, you know, he's just a little somebody who did God's will, but he's, you know, this is a, again, one of the most powerful assertions of Christ's deity you'll find uh, in the scriptures, you know, that he is a distinct person. But the language, again, it's sort of, you know, again, it, the, it, it's really kind of in the midst of the throne and these people, so it's sort of like where, you know, spatially it's hard to, to so that's where translation is difficult. 
Yeah, we've moved from who God is to what God's done. And and, and focusing on uh, moving the focus from God the Father to Christ, the focus shifts to what God has done for us through redemption. Um, yeah, so the focus has sort of, you know, and again, I, I want us to think of this in terms of our own worship, both individually and corporately, to think about, you know, the multiple ways and that we should and do praise God that you know, in one sense, we should absolutely be praising God for just who God is. Um, you know, because God is worthy of praise. But then, you know, wow, God the creator. Um, and then, whoa, God the re redeemer. Um, I, I can never remember who said it, but um, uh, there's this phrase I, I love that, that talks about how, you know, God's work of creation from all things from nothing was great. How much greater was God's work of redeeming all things from when they were worse than nothing? Um, I can't remember, and I just butchered it. But, you know, but it was that kind of emphasis on sort of, you know, seeing the, the heightening we have in this, that, you know, you know, who God is, what God's done in creation, what God's done in redemption. I mean, it's sort of, see it escalating in a sense. Uh, Bill, and then we'll come to you, Victor. Yeah, and sort of see those prayers, um, you know, to be compared to incense, to sort of see them as, you know, not just presence, but, you know, the atmosphere. And, you know, uh, I was raised Catholic, so, you know, I used to have to do the incense. And <laughs> the atmosphere becomes imbued with the presence of incense um, to sort of think of, our prayers in those same ways. And we'll see some of the content of some of those prayers uh, later on in the book as the saints, you know, especially the, the martyred saints, you know, cry out for um, deliverance and judgment. Victor. Yeah, and to see, um, and to sort of move us, because we're, we're, we're hitting our time, but the thing I wanted us to think about is the way, um, you know, in these songs, the church shows up. Um, and again, uh, I've been sort of arguing that this book is um, directed to, to a church undergoing tribulation and persecution, um, you know, helping them to, to be faithful, to endure, to overcome, to conquer, and win the, the, uh, win the prize that Christ has won for them. Um, yeah, you could really... Um, to sort of, I, I wish I was more musical, and I'm glad I've got musical people. In, but in sort of a symphonic sense, you know, how, uh, you know, you start with a, f a few instruments, and then you build, and then you get the whole orchestra, and, you know, <laughs> it had to be, in, in, in the deafening, you know, because he's hearing it, you know, he's, I heard, I heard. Um, and, you know, how, again, how it's, you know, you know, we're moving to thousands and myriads to everything. Um, and to sort of see, again, this is a picture of history, and that's the way history, you know, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. Some willingly, some unwillingly, but they're all going to acknowledge it. Um, and that's the picture John is giving us of the end of history, of, of uh, you know, this, this Christ um, whose presence is is taking place the kingdom is now and it's not yet you know we're here now to worship the king um there's one day 
everyone will acknowledge it. And what we do now in our act of worship is a foretaste of that ultimate act of worship. And um, to end, I, I just want to sort of emphasize um, this line in, in chapter 10. Notice the presence of us in these songs. Um, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That this, this lamb who has conquered, conquers so that we can reign with him. Um, and again, to sort of think of the way that we conquer, and, and, and Victor's already brought out the sort of Islamic uh, conquest or the Roman conquest, you know, we conquer not by the force of arms, but we conquer through the same way that Christ conquered. You know, this paradoxical, through our willingness to sacrifice even ourselves unto death. Um, and again, he's giving this words, as we've seen, to churches undergoing tribulation. Um, and he, I think this picture of heavenly worship encouraged them and should encourage us that Whatever sacrifice, whatever uh, tribulation you undergo for the Christ's sake is worth it. Um, that's the way of the cross. It's by the cross Christ conquers. And it's by us taking up our crosses and following them that the church will conquer. Uh, not through martial means, but through the means of this paradoxical kingdom that's broken forth on earth. So let me uh, close us in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you for this uh, vision of your heavenly kingdom um, and the worship that takes place in it. We are awed by the scene of our Redeemer, of our King, whose blood uh, purchased us, ransomed us, ransomed a people from every nation and tribe and language. What a, a wonderful picture we have of who you are and what you've done. And what a wonderful picture to have as we enter in to worship in the coming hour. Fill us with a sense of your mighty act of redemption for us and enable us to praise that we too can join this heavenly throng and declare that you are worthy. That we can testify and we can join in the amen that we believe and say it's true. The Lord God, help us not just to believe it, but to act on it that we actually would exercise your reign on the earth, that we would function um, as a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of those willing to sacrifice uh, for the sake of the kingdom, just as Christ sacrificed himself for us. For that truly is the picture of love that we see at the cross. Help us to worship you.
in spirit and truth, that we may praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.